Welcome back. We are in episode eight, and today I'm going to talk about the brain and how that bridges mind, body, spirit, and how we integrate it into our everyday life through our practices and our uh, purposes and expressions. Today I'm going to be reading from three different, four different books, and bridging those all together. I'm going to be reading from Betty Edwards, Drawing on the Right Side of Your Brain, Norman Deutsch, MD, The Brain That Changes Itself, Gabor Mate, MD, Scattered Minds, and Dr. Stuart Shanker, self-reg how to help your child and you break the stress cycle and successfully engage with life i also have books all around me by other brain scientists and doctors um, i hope in the future we can have deeper conversations about how it all fits together because uh, we're on a learning curve here. And um, hopefully we can work it out and learn together how to grow, what's really going on, and how to make the best of it. I discovered Betty Edwards in my 20s when I was in college studying commercial art. And it struck me at that time that my brain uh, had different areas and strengths and uh, governances, and that I was very right brain dominant. And reading her book helped me understand what that meant. And um, what made me different. So I didn't feel so isolated as if I was just a weirdo. I was able to actually understand that my brain worked differently than other people's brains. So here's one of the quotes from um, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, the definitive edition. She says, I will even go out on a limb and say that we mistakenly may have been putting all our educational eggs into one basket only, while shortchanging other truly valuable capabilities of the human brain, namely perception, intuition, imagination, and creativity. Perhaps Albert Einstein put it best, the intuitive mind is a sacred gift, and the rational mind is a faithful servant. We have created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. What really jumps out at me through Betty Edwards' quote, but also through Einstein's quote, is that society sets up the conditions and, and the expectations for who we are and if you've ever seen the, um, the graphic image where, and I think it has a quote as well, which I don't want to try and say, but basically, if you try to teach a fish how to climb a tree, he's going to spend his life feeling inadequate. That's the basic story. And so we've set up conditions in our society where some people are revered and other people feel inadequate because of the way our brains function. And there's no information or knowledge about the brain. So uh, we're just left to feel outsided and off kilter in some way. It creates toxic 
conditions because of the perceptions that we have of who we are and, and, and what our potentials are. So listen to this other quote, <clears throat> same book, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, the definitive edition. Betty Edwards says, the perception of edges, seeing where one thing ends and another starts. The perception of spaces, seeing what lies beside and beyond. The perception of relationships, seeing in perspective and in proportion. The perception of lights and shadows, seeing things in degrees of values. The perception of the gestalt, seeing the whole and its parts. So when we think about perception and the perception of the brain, there are so many edges. The perception of edges, perception of spaces, perception of relationships, the perception of the light and shadows, and the perception of the gestalt. That's five layers of perception that we are not necessarily aware of that happens simultaneously and, and help us to uh, create thoughts. <laughs> but for me, the focus is we're not necessarily aware of it. And some people are not aware at all. And so that creates difficulty and tension. Here's another quote I just love, and it really helps to uh, segue into what Jill Bolte Taylor is writing in her new book, Whole Brain Living, which I forgot to mention, and I'm going to get to uh, some quotes about that. But listen to this, Betty Edwards. This is from Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, a course in enhancing creativity and artistic confidence, where she says, in order to gain access to the right hemisphere, it is necessary to present the left hemisphere with a task that it will turn down. So that's key. That is key to accessing the right side of your brain. And why would you want to do that? Uh, I personally believe that that is where we go when we are in meditation, when we are in um, that state of Zen, or when we're in creative flow. Um, what drives and what motivates the activity? So, so turning, presenting the left hemisphere with a task that will turn it down. So let me explain what that might look like. So in, in um, the book, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, there's lots of exercises that do this. Um, so it, it literally forces the left hemisphere with a task that it uh, cannot do well. So by moving through the physical transition between uh, allowing and not allowing, uh, the left hemisphere can really like give you headaches, it can make you physically sick, it does not want to give up control. Learning about this and learning about this book when I was in my 20s really helped me understand the brain and this uh, body mind spirit idea that that there's part of me that wants full control and it will fight and physically give me symptoms of um you know that will will sabotage me i'm the type of an artist that works way better under pressure and going in with too much of a plan actually boggles the situation. It slows me down. So I go into an art activity um, doing what Betty Edwards suggests in her book, which is 
um, exercises to um, that the left hemisphere will turn down. So one of them is when you go to draw, you you put your your sample your your um, what you what you want to draw upside down, and you draw upside down, and what this it confuses the left hemisphere, and after a while, after you push through the physical um, confu confusion of that, um, you eventually uh, work from the right hemisphere because by that time the left hemisphere will have kind of um, quieted down and, and turned down this activity so it, it does not engage. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. So she also says, by closing one eye, you remove binocular vision. The slight variance in images called binocular disparity that occurs when we view an object with both eyes open. So binocular vision, sometimes called depth perception, allows us to see the world as three-dimensional. When you close one eye, the single image is two-dimensional. That is, it is flat, like a photograph, and therefore can be copied onto flat paper. So by closing one eye, we remove the binocular vision, which creates the slight variance in the images and allows us to see in two dimensions rather than three. It's fascinating. Okay, so what does that have to do with me and who I am and, and what I'm seeking to find in the world and in myself, which is peace? So we're going to jump here to Norman Doidge, MD, The Brain That Changes Itself. On page 363, there's a synopsis. So at the back of the book, there's a synopsis. It's sort of like the Cole's notes and references, uh, sightings, things like that. So I'm in the notes and references section and, uh, and, and we're breaking down chapter eight, which is titled Imagination. So this reference is to page 196, and it says, a changing magnetic field induces an electrical current around it. It was Michael Faraday who discovered in the 19th century that a changing magnetic field induces an electric current around it. So, this is fascinating to me in the 19th century. So it doesn't give us a date other than that. A changing magnetic field induces an electric current around it. Well, we are human, you know, our bodies are human energy systems and we are in this constant state of flux where we are um, changing depending on our environment, this combination of, of ebb and flow, depending on, uh, you know, who, what, what the current is like. So let me just read a couple more of these. So here on page 200, it says, our thoughts can change the material structure of our brains. The groundwork for the idea that thoughts can change the physical structure of the brain was proposed 500 years ago by Thomas Hobbes, H-O-B-B-E-S. He lived, he was born in 1588 and died in 1679. So I'm going to read that again. And then I'm going to go on. The groundwork for the idea that thoughts can change the physical structure of the brain was proposed 500 years ago by Thomas Hobbes, then was developed by the philosopher Alexander Bain, Sigmund Freud, 
and the neuroanatomist Santiago Ramon E. Cajal Hobbes proposed that our imagination was related to sensation and that sensation led to physical changes in the brain. He argued that when a person is touched, the impact in the form of movement travels down the nerves leading to sensory impressions. The same happens, he argued, when the eye is struck by light. Imagined visual images are generated by the same visual centers as are real images produced by external stimuli. It's just absolutely fascinating. 200 years later, 1873, philosopher Alexander Bain took Hobbes's idea to the next level and proposed that each time a thought, memory, habit, or train of ideas occurs, thoughts lead to changes in what would come to be called the synapses. Then Freud, based on his own neuroscience research, added that imagination too led to changes in neuronal connections. Wow. You know, what really fascinates me and what strikes me about what I just read is that 500 years ago, I mean, that's what I'm taking away from this right now. 500 years ago that Hobbes or Hobbes uh, developed this idea, this the groundwork for this idea that thoughts can change the physical structure of the brain. So they knew, they knew that thoughts could change the brain. I, I So I'm, you know, here I am, 2021, we are just um, x-raying the the residential school grounds and we're hearing the horror stories of the treatment and the conditions and the strategic taking down over hundreds of years of a nation of people and so i'm putting these two things together thinking they knew 500 years ago that thoughts change the brain and and then i think about somebody new to kind of take from society all of the things that fuel and educate the right hemisphere so when you think you know these day this day and age um school has been take like it has been so left brain focused that there's hardly any right brain education left. There, of course, I'm not saying that the right brain isn't active during a day where the left brain is being educated, but let's face it, language, logic, calculating, criticism, um, objective thinking, and, and that kind of education that's focused on uh, what the ego is doing and, and how the ego navigates its way in the world. And the spirit side of who we are, the right hemisphere, really has been completely denied and ignored. And art class is pretty much gone. Um, theater arts is pretty much gone. Um, we've, we've taken the conditions that, that educate the right hemisphere out of the scenario of our society. So whether, whether somebody knew about that 500 years ago and strategically understood that just by taking those things, um, they, they will change the brains. They will change the brains of, of the people. And I know that the brains of the people were changed way before that. I mean, let's, let's face it, before 
the story of Christ, this, you know, AD and BC and all of that, when you think about time, um, humanity has been wickedness and, and the evil that exists in the world today has been here. It's been here on earth um, the whole time. And, uh, you know, who built the pyramids? It was the slaves. Um, who built, you know, the, the, it's the structures and, the, and then how do we gain, regain and balance back the right side of our brain. Like I, I literally feel like there was some strategic uh, removal of everything right-brained at some point in, in our society. And, um, and, and part of what humanity is suffering from right now isn't just depression, it isn't just worry and fear, it's because we have been denied part of who we are. And um, I really feel strongly that the more we understand our whole brain, the, more, the healthier we will become. And there's nothing to fear. It's, it's a process of growth and development and coming into our wholeness as opposed to denying and depriving. So I'm jumping into Gabor Mate, Scattered Minds. And um, on page 57, chapter seven begins its title, Emotional Allergies, ADD and Sensitivity. I'm just going to read a page and a half here and then talk a little bit about how that ties in. If a mother has eight children, there are eight mothers. This is not simply because of the fact that the mother was different in her attributes to each of the eight. If she could have been the same with each, each child would have had his or her own mother seen through individual eyes. That's a quote from D.W. Winnicott, from home is where we start from. So then Gabor Mate goes on to say, supper time. The eight-year-old daughter is taking her time, leaving her toy or book or reveries. Hurry up, we wanna eat, the father says, tense with hunger and work overload. The daughter covers her ears. Don't yell at me, she complains. I'm not yelling, the man answers, this time hearing his voice raised. The child's face turns into a picture of pain and despair. Mommy, daddy's being mean to me, she cries. If the decibel count in the kitchen had been measured when the father first instructed his daughter to hurry, it would not have registered at levels most people would define as yelling. The daughter's reaction, however, is genuine. She picks up senses, experiences, the tension in the father's voice, the edge of controlled impatience and frustration. That is what is translated in her brain as yelling. She feels exactly the same fear and outrage as another child would if shouted at in an angry manner. It is a manner of sensitivity. Sorry, it is a matter of sensitivity, of the degree of reactivity to the environment. This child is emotionally hypersensitive. The derivation of sensitivity is from the Latin word sensere, to feel. Degrees of sensitivity reflect degrees of feeling. Of the various Oxford Dictionary definitions of sensitive, it will be useful to keep three in mind. Each is exquisitely apt as a description of the ADD child. Number one, very open to or acutely affected by external stimuli 
or mental impressions. Two, easily offended or emotionally hurt. Number three, as of an instrument, responsive to or recording small changes. The word has another connotation, that of being empathetic, respectful of other people's feelings. The two meanings may coexist in the same individual, but not in every case. Some of the most sensitive people in terms of how they react may be the least mindful of the feelings of others. Some human beings are hyperreactive. A relatively negligible stimulus or what to other people would seem negligible sets them off in intense reaction. When this happens in response to physical stimuli, we say a person is allergic. Someone allergic to say bee venom may choke, wheeze, gasp for air when stung. The small airways in the lungs may go into spasm, tissues in the throat may swell, the heartbeat may become irregular, his life may be in peril. The non-allergic person, had she been stung by the bee, the same bee, would experience no more than a momentary pain, a welt, an irritating itch. Was it the bee sting that sent the first victim into physiological crisis? Not directly. It was his own physiological response that brought him close to death. More accurately, it was the combination of stimulus and reaction. The precise medical term for an allergy for this hyperreactivity is hypersensitivity. People with ADD are hypersensitive. It's not a fault or a weakness. It's how they were born. It's their inborn temperament. That priorly, primarily is what is hereditary about ADD. Genetic inheritance by itself cannot account for the presence of ADD features in people, but heredity can make it far more likely that these features will emerge in a given individual, depending on circumstances. It's a sensitivity, not a disorder, that is transmitted through heredity. Heredity. In most cases, ADD is caused by the impact of the environment on particularly sensitive infants. So if the reaction is caused by the impact of the environment on these sensitive beings, it makes sense to me that how we treat each other is more important than the math we learn or anything else that, that we learn. How we treat each other so if this father had been aware of the sensitivities and the brain development and the emotional um, allergy that happens when a child is observing the sensations and the sensitivity of their reality, if, if that father had been aware of that, then it wouldn't necessarily drive the negative feelings that reinforce the reactions. It, it, it mentions here that he, he, was, he was on the edge of controlled patience and frustration. So she was picking up on the truth. And, and then depending on his reaction, this is where we really mess up in my sense, and I've, you know, I saw it with my own kids, raising my kids, and I certainly knew about it when I was teaching parenting classes that we, we can, as parents, um, we can give off a vibration 
a message of one thing and then completely deny that in the moment. So an example of that would be if you've just um, had a, a really bad fight with your partner and the children are sensing what's happening and they're like, mommy, are you okay? And you deny and smile and give them the impression that everything is fine. So they're sensing that everything is not fine. And the message you're showing them is that everything is fine. So the first thing that I believe happens is they doubt their own choice. And they learn to not trust their instinct when in fact their instinct is the truth and you're the one denying and putting the mask on that that everything is fine so it's it's a very subtle form of gaslighting and i know that's you know a buzzword that's all over the world right now but it's true it's it's one of the ways that we deny our selves and our children that intuitive perception that innate creative uh, part of who they are and we this is one of the ways that we shut it down at a very early age um, this book scattered minds is fascinating i'm not going to go into any more of it i just you know, Gaber Mate has his finger on the pulse and he knows um, the, the wisdom of who we are versus what we are doing and how that shapes culture within us and around us. And it begins at pre-birth, like it begins in utero. And I'd love to have a conversation with him about what he thinks happens in utero, you know. I can tell a story where my father was completely immersed in a, in a affair with my mother's best friend throughout my pregnancy throughout my utero. My mom, whether she knew it or not, uh, he was cheating on her. And every Friday, they would play cards. The two couples would come together and play cards. And then usually uh, the other woman's husband would leave early to relieve the babysitter. My mom's best friend would hang around with my mom. And then my dad would drive her home. And who knows, that carried on for two years before my dad left. And he left when I was two. So for my first two years, and in utero, I'm counting part of that. So almost three years my dad was cheating on my mom like how happy could she have been really do you think she knew we don't think she knew until she found out in the end and threw him out but the conditions of the culture like the conditions of their home environment the conditions for the children for us kids there were four of us who grew up um uh, you know, in that. So that leads me to my last book, uh, which is by Dr. Stuart Shanker, called Self-Reg. And I've opened it up to page 122. This is a section called Nurturing or Inhibiting Emotional Growth. Self-regulation in the biological domain can be summed up in a single line. A child shifts into psychological states that consume energy, then calms and recovers, restoring energy. The same is true in the emotion domain. 
where a child experiences strong emotions that consume enormous amounts of energy, then calms, recovers, and restores energy. The recovery phase is vital in the biological domain because it creates the optimal conditions for growth and healing. The same is true for the emotion domain. The parent-child dynamic of the interbrain is crucial for emotional growth. It is not the sole engine of emotional growth, of course. Children naturally confront and explore their emotions through pretend play, peer interactions, the stories they read, and the stories they tell. Parents play a critical role in this process. Through our responses, unconscious as well as conscious, we enhance a child's emotional growth. And sometimes, unfortunately, we can hold back their emotional growth. When children broach emotional themes that make us uncomfortable, questions about life, death, sex, or aspects of our own behavior that we'd prefer to ignore, and we avoid the subject, they learn to avoid it too. If we engage them, are open to their questions, share from our own experience and our own search for answers, they expand their emotional repertoire to include reflection and self-awareness. A child stuck in a particular emotion will tend to respond reflexively to the things she's scared of or angry about. It can be very frightening for a child or a teen to find herself swept up in an emotional tsunami and our fearful or angry response makes it that much harder to calm and find emotional equilibrium. The more a child is gripped by fear or anger, the less she's able to engage with us or process what we're saying to help her deal with the challenge. The critical step in nurturing a child's emotional growth is to maintain the fluid two-way communication of the interbrain, even though through rough patches that threaten to disconnect you, especially in the rough patches. It's through these nurturing operations of the interbrain that a child's basic emotions can differentiate, broaden, and deepen, and positive secondary emotions like courage, determination, hope, and compassion can develop. The deeper this base of emotional assets, the less effort is required to remain calm in a stressful situation. But in this process, a child can also acquire the sorts of negative secondary emotions that I mentioned despair, envy, guilt, or helplessness, which render her even more emotionally fragile and vulnerable to anxiety. The two-way interbrain dialogue doesn't lie. As a child grows, he starts to explore all sorts of different emotions, not just the ones that he finds exhilarating, but also the ones he finds frightening. It is important that we be receptive to all his emotional overtures and don't shy away from the hard ones that make us uneasy. Just as we ourselves are mesmerized by movies that explore some dark and disturbing emotion, so too a child needs to feel safe exploring emotional themes that frighten him. We can provide this feeling of security only by remaining calm and engaged. This helps the child learn how to manage the emotions that he finds unsettling rather than staying stuck in or regressing to an earlier phase of overwhelming physical and emotional reaction. What really strikes me about this piece in terms of what I'm talking about is how important it is for security, for the brain to feel safe for this practice of consuming energy and then 
calming and recovering and restoring energy. So consuming energy and restoring energy. It's like chaos and calm and chaos and calm. And if we don't have those conditions where we can exercise that and mature in the ability to uh, regulate it's almost like we we become in that hyper state of allergy. Back to Betty Edwards. So, as a number of scientists have noted, research on the brain is complicated by the fact that the brain is struggling to understand itself. This three-pound organ is perhaps the only bit of matter in the universe, at least as far as we know, that is observing itself, wondering about itself, trying to analyze itself, and attempting to gain better control of its own capabilities. We're in a constant state of creation and society somewhere along the line denies has denied us access and exercise and focus on I'm going to say the better part of who we are the right side of our brain so that leads me into talking about Jill Bolte-Taylor and her new book, Whole Brain Living. I'm going to read from the back of the book, page 275. Jill Bolte-Taylor says, all those years ago, my TED Talk was about me. Now it's about you. So then it goes on to quote her. You are the life force power of the universe with manual dexterity and two cognitive minds. You have the power to choose moment by moment who and how you want to be in the world. Right here, right now, you can step into the consciousness of your right hemisphere where you are the life force power of the universe. You are the life force power of the 50 trillion beautiful molecular geniuses that make up your form at one with all that is. Or you can choose to step into the consciousness of your left hemisphere, where you become a single individual, a solid, separate from the flow and separate from me. These are the we of your four characters. Which do you choose? And when I believe that the more time you spend choosing to run the deep inner peace circuitry of your right hemisphere, the more peace you will project into the world and the more peaceful our planet will be. And I still think that's an idea worth spreading. Wow. Those are the last words of this book. And then it goes into the index, Whole Brain Living. I'm not, I haven't even read this whole book. I'm still uh, early on in, in it. Uh, but I'm one of those people where I, you know, when I'm, I love to jump, uh, just finger through a book and open it on a page and see what inspires me. And what I just read is what popped up for this episode today. Jill Bolte-Taylor's experience of her own stroke brought her to the genius. She has this insight. And as I'm reading this book, ladies and gentlemen, I have to tell you, it's making sense to me and it brings further clarity to who I am and how my brain um, has always thought and, and, I can take some of the stories and <clears throat> use her theory to make sense of it, of what was happening in, in, my, in my reality. So this is part of this episode to introduce these minds, these beautiful minds that have come together uh, to 
help us understand our own physiology, spirituality, and biology, as well as, you know, how that interfaces within the finer workings of our body. It's fascinating. And I believe that this is going to lead us further and further into the work, perhaps that I'm meant to do, which is looking at how energy interfaces with emotion, how emotion interfaces with our thought process, how our thought process interfaces with our belief process, and how our belief process, our thought process, and the whole uh, neurobiology of it all creates who we are. And as we heard, our thoughts also dictate what's going on around us. So there's a there's a responsibility to know, and there's, I think, a responsibility to create a way of understanding. So teaching and navigating the landscape of our soul, the spirit of who we are, which I believe is the right hemisphere dominant and the somewhere down through history somebody recognized that thought can be manipulated and we were literally robbed of the best part of who we are <laughs> and uh so i invite your thoughts and feelings and feedback and um let me know what makes sense to you. What are your questions? Um, this is an ongoing conversation and the underpinning of who I am and really what is uh, going to help me find peace. <laughs> because all through my history, I have had this urge and vision and um, it's coming together right now. This is part of it. Um, I'm not planning it. I'm just being instead of um, trying to figure it all out and be perfect. I am putting it out there in the hopes that um, others are listening and hearing and understanding and that it makes sense. Um, and if I'm saying things that have been said before, it's because none of this is my knowledge. I'm reading from books of fabulous minds who I am just almost like a, like I, I kind of feel like, like every one of these is, is a balloon and I'm just holding the bouquet and I'm just showing people my beautiful balloons and the way I view the world. So, um, yeah. So anyway, it's a it's a synergy, isn't it? It's a synergy, and it's very eclectic, in one way. But the theme is finding our soul and uh, figuring out how to integrate body and soul um, in a way that makes sense in our society these days. We've kind of vilified the role of the soul and we've attached it to religion and we've allowed somewhere along the line, maybe it was strategic, who knows, there's probably, and I know there's lots of theories out there, but um, I'm just looking for the truth that makes sense to me. So, yeah. <laughs> How do you like me now? To wrap up today and set up for next week, I just want to touch on the sense of running deep peace circuitry and the awareness 
that it takes in order to change magnetic fields that influence the electric currents around us. Um, so I know that society's in this state of, you know, chaos and creation and equilibrium, emotional equilibrium is so important to me. Having fluidity between what's going on in my body and my heart, my mind, the integration of life and how I can get to peace. Because honestly, I'm trying to find a way to integrate mind, body, and spirit so that my heart and my mind can come into union inside of my body and we can all be happy here. Like it's the trio, right? And I'll get into that in future. But next week, I want to talk about practices that help this state of regulation and taking deregulation and, and bringing emotional equilibrium through a meditation practice. So if you haven't heard already, the crappy childhood fairy has a free course and I personally think you should, everyone should just run out and take her um, free course for the daily meditation or the daily practice, I think it's called. Uh, but that's what I'm gonna talk about next week. We're actually gonna experience the meditation and I'm gonna talk about what's been happening over the last few weeks that I've been practicing this. And this is a, a dedication going forward because I'm committed to my brain and creating the conditions that uh, make me aware of the edges and the spaces and the relationships and the light and shadow, uh, the whole gestalt experience as uh, we talked about earlier. So thanks so much for being here and I look forward to next week.